Amen. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much, team, for leading us. Uh, Thank you, Ron and Joey, for uh, encouraging us this morning with your stories. Um, Church family, if you uh, have not made plans to come to the Holy Spirit encounter, heed the encouragement. Uh, looking forward to that event coming up really soon. So uh, welcome here. If, you, if you're new or you're visiting, my name's Jamie, and uh, I have the privilege of getting to unpack the scriptures for you this morning. And uh, I'm one of the pastors here, and I'd love to get to know you and meet you if you're a new uh, visitor with us. Uh, hello. Oh, I lost it. There it is. Hello to our online community as well. We love you. I hope you're all doing well. We pray for you. And um, I have a special guest to introduce to you this morning, and his name is Jean-Christophe Bisseler. Did I pronounce that right? Fabulous. I've been practicing all week. So uh, Jean-Christophe is here worshiping with us this morning, and Jean-Christophe is the Director General of ATEC, which is an Alliance Seminary in uh, Montreal in Quebec. And uh, you may or may not know this, church family, but as part of, uh, part of our missions funds, we support lots of different uh, institutions, organizations, missionaries, and so on. And one of them is ATEC, and we're delighted to do it. Uh, we hear good things coming out of that school. Uh, we pray for you, um, and we're delighted that you're here. And uh, Jean-Christophe is uh, doing a bit of a tour of BC, and so is worshiping with Seven Oaks. And so you're going to be out in the lobby after the service, correct? Wonderful. So if you have questions, if you'd like to know uh, something about the seminary uh, out there in Montreal, if you're interested in hearing about uh, what's going on and some of the stories, if you want to maybe ask Jean-Christophe about the evangelical scene in Quebec or in Montreal, if you want to know how to pray uh, for ATEC, then go and have a conversation with him. And uh, again, we're just so glad that you're with us. Can we hear it for Jean-Christophe? Excellent. So last Sunday, we began a new series focusing on the five women uh, that show up in the genealogy of Jesus, that's the family tree of Jesus, that we find at the beginning of Matthew's gospel. And uh, so I mentioned to you how we would be looking at some of the reasons uh, that women in general show up in the genealogy, which is sort of interesting, uh, why they show up uh, there as sort of a collective, and I'll likely talk a little bit more about that next uh, Sunday, uh, but also that we take these five Sundays to sort of drill down into the individual stories of these women as we find them in Scripture. And uh, so uh, last week, we began with the story of Tamar, which I think is probably the least well-known of the stories, would be my sort of a general impression. And so we saw how Tamar became the mother of Perez and Zerah, by Judah. And if you know your Old Testament, you would know probably the name Judah. There's probably a lot of the names in the genealogy that we maybe don't know or haven't heard of or are unfamiliar with, but Judah would probably be one that we know. Judah was one of the 12 sons of Jacob who was renamed Israel, and so Judah was one of the heads of the tribes of, of, of Israel, one of the 12 tribes. And uh, so Tamar um, was not the wife of Judah. She was actually the daughter-in-law of Judah, and yes, it gets weird. It's a weird story. And if you'd like to catch up on that, uh, uh, if you weren't here last Sunday, you can go to our website and listen to that uh, sermon. Uh, So we're just going to dive right into the genealogy again. We're just going to read a few verses from Matthew, uh, starting at verse 4, and we're just going to go to sort of halfway through uh, verse 6. And um, it's a bit odd. We just kind of jump into it in the middle of a sentence, but it is a list of names, so there we There we have it. 
And Aram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. So there's our second woman. That's who we're going to talk about today. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And that's our third woman. And we're going to talk about her next week. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David, of David's line. There we have it. So we're at a completely different time in Israel's history now. We have moved on by a few hundred years. With the Tamar story, we're in that period of Israel's history that was dominated by the patriarchs. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchal history of our faith. And and we were looking at the sons of Jacob in uh, in particular, and Judah specifically, where Tamar gets kind of inserted in the story of the line of Israel. And, And the patriarchs were wealthy individuals. They had lots of flocks and herds, and they lived in the land of Canaan, which is at the very east end of the Mediterranean Sea. It's the strip of land that is called Israel, that became Israel. So they're living in their ancient sort of pre-Israelite, pre-historical sort of land. And uh, as I said, they had flocks and herds, and they lived among the peoples. And God revealed himself to Abraham, the first patriarch. God revealed himself to him, and he made a covenant with him, and he made a promise. The promise was this, I'm going to give you so many descendants, you wouldn't even be able to count them. They'll be like the sand on the seashore, or they'll be like the stars in the sky. I'm going to give you such a family line and so many descendants, you couldn't even count them, and I am going to bless them, and I'm going to give them a grand future. And what God was doing is he was taking the initiative. Because if you've read the first 11 chapters of Genesis, you know about creation and then fall, and you know about the spiraling down of humanity and how the people from... from, um, The Tower of Babel was scattered across the known world at that time, and there was pretty much no God consciousness until God took the initiative. Abraham didn't go and search out God. God searched out him and found him and revealed himself to him to provide a way back. Rahab, our next woman of the genealogy, lived a long, long time after this. We're talking about 400 years or so. So at the end of the patriarchs, the patriarchal period, as we come towards the end of the book of Genesis, God had sovereignly allowed the people to find refuge in the land of Egypt during a famine in Canaan. If they had stayed in Canaan, they probably would have been wiped out and God's promise would have come to nothing. So God sovereignly allowed them to come into Egypt, and we can trace through God's sovereignty through the calamity that comes upon Joseph. And Joseph was a younger brother of Judah, and all the brothers were mad at Joseph because Joseph was the favorite, and they became jealous of him. And as I said last week, it was Judah's idea, hey, let's sell him into slavery, and then we'll just tell dad that he got killed by wild animals or something. And so Joseph gets sold into slavery, ends up in Egypt, and then he gets promoted in Egypt. He finds favor with Pharaoh and becomes a leader in Egypt And that is the way this family, the family that had rejected Joseph, find their way into the safety of Egypt during the famine in Canaan. And so, as you can imagine, the themes of sovereignty and forgiveness and redemption are all through that wonderful story. The people of God then 
after 400 years, they didn't just go in uh, to the land, wait until the famine was over and then return. They were there for 400 years. And they, they had swollen from a family of probably roughly around 70 people within 400 years to probably estimates for about one to two million people. And at one time, they had favor under the Pharaoh of the time. But you know what happens in, with people groups within nations. Sometimes they have favor and sometimes they don't. And sometimes they end up as refugees. And you know how things change so quickly as decades pass. Well, 400 years passed. And they at once had favor with the Egyptian leadership, but eventually they didn't. And they were sold into slavery until God raises up Moses to free them from the land to march them out towards the promised land. There would have been a journey of about a week, maybe two weeks, but it took them 40 years. And it took them 40 years because they became a faithless generation. And so God waited, up until, waited until the next generation was raised up. And this generation then is poised to go in and take the land of Canaan for themselves, the land of promise, and they're poised, and they're sitting there camping on the east side of the Jordan River, ready to go in. And this is the point of history that Rahab shows up, that we're going to read her story now. Uh, by the way, if you're newer to the Bible and, and that whirlwind history I just gave you doesn't really make a lot of sense to you, don't worry about it. You'll still be able to uh, get, uh, get a lot out of this story itself. But that's the context. So Joshua chapter 2. And we're going to read 1 to 7. Then Joshua, son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went, and they entered the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab, and spent the night there. The king of Jericho was told, Some Israelites have come in here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent orders to Rahab, bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered into your house, for they have come only to search out the whole land. But the woman took the two men and hid them. Then she said, uh, true, the men came to me, but I didn't know who, where they had come from. And when it was time to close the gate at dark, the men went out. Where the men went, I do not know. Pursue them quickly, for you can overtake them. She had, however, brought them up to the roof and hidden them under stalks of flax that she had laid out on the roof. So the men pursued them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords. As soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. God's word to us this morning. So, interesting beginning to the Rahab story. Uh, it begins with Joshua sending out two spies to go and spy out the land from their place on the east side of the Jordan River. Go and check out the land. Go and see what it's like, especially going to Jericho. That's, that's going to be one of the cities we're going to want to take. They're on a covert mission. This was espionage. This was spy stuff. And, and, and for those of us who, who, who maybe know the Old Testament, we will know that that actually reminds us of something Moses did with the first generation of Israelites, he sent out 12 spies. They were camped in Kadesh Barnea, which is a little bit further away, and he sent 12 spies, one from each of the 12 tribes, and he sent them to go and, and check out the land. But it didn't work out very well, because 10 of those 12 spies came back and said, you know what, guys, I, I don't think we can do it. They're big. They've got a big army. Those guys, were like, we were like grasshoppers compared to these giants. Um, 
they spread a bad report and it got under the skin of the people and fear gripped the nation and they lost their nerve. At that point, it didn't matter that two came back and said, what are you talking about? God has promised us a land, we can take it. And the people listened to the voice of the 10 spies and it didn't go well for them. God had told Moses to send out those 12 spies. God did not tell Joshua to send out two spies. At least it's not recorded for us. Joshua just did it. Maybe he was doing what he saw his mentor Moses do. But one thing that God did say was, be bold and courageous, Joshua. In chapter one, we didn't read it, but be be bold and courageous. Everywhere you lay a foot, I'm going to give you that land. This is the land I'm promising. Go in and take it. He's giving him all these promises. So why is he sending out spies then? Was it a failure of nerve on Joshua's part? Did he lack faith? Did he lack trust? Or was it good military strategy? People go either way on those. We're not really told. So I guess we can kind of leave it with a question mark. But I raise it because later on we're going to touch on it again. One thing Joshua did do, however, that was different to Moses, is he sent two spies instead of 12, and it says he did it secretly. Well, two spies rather than 12 have a much better chance of slipping in unnoticed, right? And the idea of secretly probably didn't just mean he's sending them in, you know, secretly to the people of the land. It probably meant he was sending them in secretly from the rest of the Israelites, The rest of the Israelites knew, back in Moses' story, they knew that these spies were going out. But I think that secretly means that Joshua didn't tell them. In a similar way to, you know, our governments don't tell us when they send spies in to do espionage. We we find out later when they make a Hollywood movie about it, right? That's how we know. Um, so, So I think that's what was happening because I wonder if Joshua was thinking, you know what? If they come back and spread a a bad report, maybe the exact same thing is going to happen to us that happened to Moses. It's going to get under the skin of our people, and we're going to be fearful. So he sends them secretly. Whatever the answer to all of those things, all of those questions that I raised, what we do know is that the spies crossed the River Jordan, they slipped into the land, they snuck into Jericho, and they assumedly, assumedly uh, mixed with the people, started mingling with the people in the streets. And then we're told that they end up going into the house of Rahab, and we're told that Rahab is a prostitute. And it may have been, actually, that she was running a brothel. Prostitutes don't usually own their own homes in those days, and so it could have been that she was running a brothel. We're not actually told. We're not given very much information, but some people have tried to soften this over the years and tried to say, well, Rahab was just an innkeeper. Like, she wasn't an innkeeper. Uh, the language uh, is, is pretty unambiguous, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament where it talks about Rahab. It's pretty clear what, who she was and what she was doing. So this is not an innkeeper, and we're not told how they ended up entering her house or how they met with her. So we're left to, to kind of guess. Did they just come across her when they were mingling with the people? I mean, if you were spies trying to be incognito, 
uh, you might well think, well, if anyone's going to keep a secret, if anybody's used to keeping a secret about men that come to a house, it's probably a prostitute. So maybe this is a really good house to go into. And prostitutes tend to be on the edge of society. Society, often they're part of it, but they're not because they tend to be looked down on in terms of their, their sort of profession and so on. And so maybe he's thinking, well, you know what? Um, a prostitute might actually keep things quiet and be less concerned about or ambivalent towards Israelites. Maybe she won't feel the same kind of loyalty to the society that doesn't really accept her, so maybe she's not going to raise the alarm. However they got there, they met Rahab somehow, and they go into her house, and of course, some people have asked, well, okay, but were the soldiers just mixing a bit of business and pleasure? Were the GIs going into the prostitute's house or into the brothel? Well, those suspicions are fair ones, but the language of the passage seems to be more They took shelter, they entered the house, and they slept the night there. It doesn't say they slept with her or anybody else. There there doesn't seem to be sexual overtones with what's happening here, but maybe there was, and I don't think we'll ever know. We won't ever know. But I think the fact that she's a prostitute has less to do with some kind of scandal related to them, but has more to do with the larger arc of the story, and not only this story, but the story of God. And that is that God uses all kinds of people. God uses people that he determines to use, and no one is beyond his reach. The king of Jericho hears that the Israelites are there, and he orders Rahab to bring the men out. So the spies are unsuccessful at being covert and hidden, and pretty understandable, I think. I mean, if you were a resident of Jericho or one of the other cities, it would be pretty hard for you to miss the fact that there's, you know, one to two million people camping just across the river. I'm pretty sure they knew they were there. So if eyes are, or all eyes are on these people, then it would be very hard for Israelites to slip into the city. I'm sure they were watching them. They probably had their own spies going to check out all these people camped on the other side of the river. And what's more... Rahab is even going to say, we saw what happened. We saw how you escaped from Egypt. We saw what you did with these other kings and so on. And she also is, is, is going to uh, raise that to them. So uh, it's pretty understandable that um, somebody would recognize these guys. But Rahab creates a story. She says, yeah, 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 those men, they, they did come here, but I didn't know who they were. Anyway, they've already left, and I saw them. They left the city just before the gates closed. So if you go, you'll probably be able to catch them. Run and see if you can overtake them, she says. And she sends the men off on a wild goose chase. But meanwhile, she'd hidden the spies up on the roof. Underneath some stalks of flax she probably had on a roof to dry out. And they're hiding under these stalks of flax. The spies, the Israelite spies, the spies from the covenant people, their lives are literally in the hands of a Canaanite prostitute. They're in grave danger. And there's great irony in this story. There's humor in this story. They were sent to get some information, to dig up some information, and they end up buried underneath flax. They were looking for obscurity in Rahab's house, but ended up in a precariously visible hiding place that would be pretty easy to find somebody on a roof underneath 
some flax. And it's difficult to see the land or view the land from underneath the flax. So the mission has failed. Their fate is in the hands of Rahab. But Rahab's life is also hanging in the balance. Like she already has one strike against her because of the fact that she's a prostitute. But now also she's hiding enemies of the state. She could be executed for treason. So we have to ask ourselves, why on earth is Rahab doing this? Why doesn't she just say, yeah, they they came in, here, take them. Why does she do this? Let's read on in the story. Joshua 8, picking up from there. Before they went to sleep, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and the dread of you has fallen on us and all the inhabitants of the land melt in fear before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites that were on the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. As soon as we heard it, our hearts failed and there was no courage left in any of us because of you. The Lord your God is indeed Lord in heaven above and on earth below. What a fascinating statement. Now then, since I have dealt kindly with you, swear to me by the Lord that you in turn will deal kindly with my family. Give me a sign of good faith that you will spare my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. The men said to her, our life for yours. If you do not tell the business, this business of ours, then we will deal kindly and faithfully with you when the Lord gives us the land. Last Sunday when I was talking about Tamar, I told you that the writing was on the wall for Tamar. She knew that the way she was being treated was was not right, was not in keeping with laws and customs of the ancient world, and that actually being a widow in those days and childless, she was in a very precarious position. And she knew it. She knew what was happening. The writing was on the wall for this woman, and she had to act. Well, I think again here we have the writing on the wall for Rahab. She knows that she, along with the rest of the city, know that their days are numbered. They've heard the stories and they've watched the newsreel of Israel making their way towards the promised land, pushing aside Amorite kings as they head towards the Jordan River. Jericho is full of fear. Dread has fallen upon the city. So once again, just like last week, we have a woman acting shrewdly for her future and the future of her family. I've risked everything to hide you. Remember what I've done for you. And when you and your nation march in here and take over Jericho, spare my family. Rahab appears to be the only competent character in the entire story. I stop and think about it for a minute. The spies end up hiding under some kind of flax The Jericho king gets outwitted by her. Jericho's soldiers end up running all over the place, the countryside, on a wild goose chase. She is the only one that has any kind of competence. Rahab is bold. She's courageous. She's willing to take a risk. She's convincing in her speech. She's wily. She's an effective negotiator, a hero for her family. In fact, Rahab and Joshua are the only two people that have names in the story. The others are just nameless characters. The spies, the king, 
the soldiers. They're not even named. Also, if we're right about Joshua losing a bit of nerve by sending out the spies, then evidently Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute, is more confident that Yahweh will deliver on his promises than Joshua is. Interesting, hey? What's more? Rahab is the first person to mention the name of Yahweh in the story. And speaking of which, she says this, the Lord your God is indeed God in heaven above and on earth below. That's pretty good theology for a Canaanite prostitute. Rahab acknowledges that although although there are Canaanite warrior gods, none of them are as powerful as Yahweh. Rahab, I believe, has crossed a line of belief. She may not be a fully-fledged believer yet. She may not be a fully-fledged Israelite yet. She says, your God. She doesn't say, my God. But she's on her way. I want to pause the story for a second. And those of you who know the Old Testament well will, will understand what I'm saying here when I quote this. What if there were even 10 righteous people in Sodom? Would you spare it? Maybe the whole spy thing is not for the sake of Joshua. It's not for the sake of Israel. It's not for the sake of any of them. It's actually for the sake of Rahab and her family. What if God in his divine foreknowledge knows there are people in the city of Jericho who will respond to me in faith? And what if that is the reason for the whole spy thing so that they go and strike a deal with Rahab? You know, One of the hardest parts of the Old Testament for us to have to wrestle with is the conquest because we say, how can God have done that and been okay with that? And we struggle with that. And there are answers to it, but even the answers seem a little unsatisfying. I mean, we say, well, God gave them 400 years to repent. It's why in Genesis 15, it says, you know, the sins of the Amorites are not yet complete. So God was giving them time to repent and time to turn away. And we know that what they did was very, very wicked in the land and God finally judged them. But what if in this story, God sees in his divine foreknowledge that there are people there who he wants to spare because they're gonna be covenant faithful people and the whole spies thing was all for Rahab and Rahab's family. Again, it doesn't doesn't completely satisfy us on the conquest thing. There's still many questions that we have. But it's another little help, isn't it? Let's read the end of the story. Then she let them down by, uh, sorry, verse 15, starting at verse 15. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was on the outer side of the city wall, and she resided within the wall itself. She said to them, go towards the hill country so that the pursuers may not come upon you. Hide yourselves there for three days until the pursuers have returned, then afterwards you may go on your way. And the men said to her, we will be released from this oath that you have made us swear to you if we invade the land and you do not tie this crimson cord in the window through which you have let us down. And you do not gather into your house your father and mother and brothers and and your family. If any of you go out the doors of your house into the street, they shall be responsible for their own death and we shall be innocent. But if a hand is laid upon any who are with you in the house, we shall bear the responsibility for the death. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be released from this oath that you've made us uh, us to swear. And she said, according to your word, so be it. 
She sent them away and they departed. Then she tied the crimson cord in the window. They departed and went to the hill country and stayed there for three days until the pursuers returned. The pursuers had searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men came down again from the hill country. They crossed over, came to Joshua, son of Nun, and told him all that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, truly the Lord has given the land into our, our hands. Moreover, the inhabitants of the land melt in fear before us. Now that's a better report, isn't it? That's a better report than the 10 gave to Moses back in the day. And so we close with this deal that's been struck then between Rahab uh, and, the, and, and the two spies. And she lets them down the outside of the city wall. Um, it's kind of a little bit odd to, to fit, but they, they actually had a lot of these ancient cities had two walls. Um, uh, for extra protection, then they'd actually fill it with rocks in between. And then what they would do, uh, high up, they would, they would have some platforms that they would build, and then actually people would, would live in the walls, between the walls. And it's probably where uh, Rahab was living, and that's why she had this window that was external that enabled her to get down. Talk about living on the edge of society, right? There's one thing uh, I just want to address um, with you, because it always comes up in a discussion of Rahab, and I think it's really important. And that is this idea that, that Rahab lies, and it seems like it's okay. She lies, and, and, and people say, well, we're told not to lie. Uh, Truth-telling is really central to our faith. And as believers, the Bible t teaches that, that lying is sinful. And, and so we kind of wrestle with this, and this is sort of the key one we bring up. We said, yeah, but Rahab lied. And well, firstly, let's just remember, she's not part of the covenant people. She's not a believer. She's not, she's not a Christian, right? Um, she's, she's a Canaanite prostitute. So I don't think she's held to, she's certainly not held to Torah, to the law in any way. So of course that's going to happen. Sometimes the Bible describes something that happens, uh, but doesn't necessarily proscribe it. Then therefore we're all allowed to do that. Uh, no. However, however, I think uh, we have to be careful not to get too wrapped up in all of this. And here's why. Uh, and I only get to scratch the surface here a little bit, but this will be a great lunchtime conversation for you to have. I speak for myself, but I'm pretty sure I speak for everybody in this room. When I say, if a murderer breaks into my house tonight and threatens my life, but fortunately I manage to hide my wife and my two kids and my dog away in a room where he'll never find them and lock the door and, and all of that. If the murderer says to me, uh, where are they? I'm gonna lie to him. I'm not gonna say, oh, man, I really love my family, but I'm not supposed to lie, so they're in that room over there. <laughs> like, I'm not gonna do that. And I hope none of you would do that. So I'm gonna lie, and I'm pretty sure that I'm okay to do that. I'm pretty sure that I'm in, not in the hot water of, you know, you're a dreadful sinner for, for lying. I think I'm going to be okay. If you want another biblical example, the New Testament says that by faith, by faith, Moses' parents hid him from Pharaoh. That's deception. They deceived Pharaoh, but they did it by faith. That's interesting, hey? So there are these kind of extreme examples where it seems like deception that preserves life is not condemned or should not be condemned. Think of all the stories we have of those amazing missionaries that smuggle Bibles into countries and deceive to bring Bibles into countries. Or think about the wonderful people of faith who in the Second World War hid Jews from the Nazis 
by deception and probably by lying. I don't think any one of us would say, well, they should have told the truth. There's, of course, of lots of different examples as well in general life, just small, little, inane examples, like don't people trick each other in sports, like deceive each other to try to win? Don't chess players try to deceive each other? I mean, I think what we've got to understand is there's the law and there's the spirit of the law here. And there's a lot more that we could say about that, and I, I think uh, certainly there are extreme examples here. And in those extreme examples, we just need to be careful that we're not being Pharisaic about it. The Pharisees, for example, when they tithed, they would tithe 10% of the mint leaves on their mint plant. And they did it because they wanted to perfect the law so wonderfully, and, and yet they did all kinds of things that they should never have done without breaking the law. And Jesus gets in their face about it. And I think there's a similar principle here. Now, please hear me, church family, loud and clear. You're not allowed to go and start lying and say, well, the pastor said we're allowed to lie. That's not what I'm saying. In most situations, lying is not right, especially when it's just for personal benefit. I'm going to lie on my resume to get a better job. You did wrong. You shouldn't have done that. You didn't trust that God was going to provide something for you. I'm going to lie to get myself out of this. I'm going to lie to, you know, do this or whatever, whatever it is for personal benefit. That, that is sinful and it's wrong and you shouldn't do it. But lying to preserve life, well, that's a little bit different, I think. And I think that's a pretty good principle to go by. There's a lot we could talk about um, at lunchtime. Go have a conversation. I'd like to close this morning by bringing your attention to the crimson cord. The spies agree to spare Rahab and her family, but lay out the way that that is going to be possible. In the chaos of a city invasion, how on earth are Israelite warriors who are uh, you know, going into the city, how are they possibly going to identify Rahab and all of her family? I mean, it would be impossible for them to do that. And so they set up a plan and they say, well, put this crimson cord in your window, and so long as you gather all your family in that, uh, in that home, we will, not, we will spare you. We won't kill you. If you happen to step out of that room, there's no way we can tell that you're a family member of Rahab, and so it's your fault. It's on you. And that's how uh, they kind of uh, deal with it. And it reminds me, I don't know about you, about the crimson blood of the sacrificed lamb smeared on the doorposts at the time of the Exodus. Those inside the house will be, uh, with the red cord will be spared. And God is in the business of saving people. He wants to save people. And the day will come in the future from Rahab's time where those who put their faith in Christ will be covered by the blood and protected from judgment. They will have a life beyond judgment and live in and be grafted into the family tree, the genealogy of Messiah Jesus, adopted into the family of God and participate in the renewal of all things at the end of time. The crimson cord that hangs over all of us who know Jesus. So Rahab, like Tamar, is an unlikely entry into the genealogy of Jesus. But apparently, after being spared by the Israelites, she marries one. She marries one by the name of Salmon. And they have a child named Boaz. And Boaz ends up also marrying um, another Gentile woman, a woman from Moab named Ruth. 
and we're going to tell that story next week. So I'd just like to close with a couple of questions I have to pose for you. Are you an unlikely person in the family of God? I feel like I am. And once again, the story reminds us that the Father's arms are open wide to people of all races and all tribes and all tongues, to people of all backgrounds and all levels of brokenness and sinfulness. The Father's arms are open wide to the ones that society forgets or ignores. And that is not just simply good news for us. It is also how the church should be postured. And throughout history, we haven't always done a good job of that. Rahab acts decisively and boldly. She sees the writing on the wall and acts on behalf of her family and herself. And according to Hebrews 11, it says, By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with the disobedient because she had received the spies in peace. Is there somewhere in your life where you need to act according to faith? Has God been asking you to step into something that you've been fearful of or too timid to do? or don't want to step out of your comfort zone? Is there something God is asking you to do, however small or however big that might be? The truth is that the next level of depth with God is often just beyond a level of comfort, the place where he'll meet us and stretch us and use us and bless us. So what's that thing? I encourage you to consider being a Rahab and stepping out in faith. All right, amen, Matthew, team, let us sing together.